One morning, late last week, I woke up with a song playing in my mind. The uh, lyrics were, What the world needs now is love, sweet love. It's the only thing that there's just too little of. The song was written by Burt Bacharach and became a big hit for someone named Jackie DeShannon in 1965. It was not, however, a big hit for me at 2 a.m. During quiet moments of the day, I'm still aware of it playing quietly in the background. It probably won't go away until it's replaced by something else. Whatever it is, I'm praying it won't be a Neil Diamond song. The last thing I want is refrains of Sweet Caroline running through my mind when I'm singing the, the Miserere song. A catchy piece of music that continually peats in the mind after the music is no longer playing is called an earworm. Now, there are a lot of people who experience it, apparently above 90%. I read an interview once about a man who woke up one morning to the sound of a rabbi singing. He thought it was coming from outside the window and quickly discovered it was happening in his head. The rabbi has been singing now for 12 years, though the song and tempo subtly change over the course of a week. Maybe Neil Diamond could push him out. After last Sunday's gospel, I remembered an annoying earworm I routinely got from a bit of liturgical music we used to sing in my years of theological studies and parish work. The song was composed by a man named Jean A. Greif. Greif studied organ in Chicago. He played at the Uptown Theater at one time and other movie theaters before talkies. In the early 70s, he wrote... You are the light of the world with its bouncy refrain in 6-8 that uh, sticks like in your ear like musical glue. The text of the song was based on Matthew 5-14. And in all the years I sang that in seminary and parish liturgies, it never occurred to me to question that troublesome little shift in pronouns that takes place in the refrain. We are the light of the world, or let our light shine before all, that they may see the good that we do and give glory to God. You've all heard it, haven't you? Yeah, well, at least one person is lucky. In the gospel, the Lord Jesus, addressing the disciples, says, You, you are the light of the world. The switch in pronouns is not insignificant. It's one thing to have Christ call us the light of the world. It's another thing to make that claim for ourselves completely out of context. There's another thing about the use of that song in our Eucharistic assembly. Long before we began to celebrate our enlightened status as Christians, the prophet Isaiah was using light as a metaphor for the people of the covenant, the Jews. Israel, you remember, was the people through whom God sent about addressing the failure of the human race to be his image-bearing stewards. In a world where falsehood, injustice, and therefore death reigned, Israel, and especially Jerusalem, would be the city set on a hill, a beacon of righteousness, holiness, and truth for all to see. But something went wrong. Invaded and occupied by successive waves of pagan armies, Israel forgot her true vocation. Turning inward, she surrounded her light with a wall to keep it in for herself. When the Lord Jesus, 
calls the disciples the light of the world. You are the light of the world. He is speaking out of his prophetic, out of this prophetic tradition. He challenges Israel to live up to her unique vocation as the people of the covenant. Jesus is setting the agenda for the divine project to rescue our fallen world and to reclaim men and women for the rule of God, not the rule of evil. But that is a project that only comes about through a community that shares Christ's vision and more of people willing, like him, to pay the cost of living out that vision in a world that will oppose it by any means whatsoever. All that I've said thus far, obviously, is a commentary on last week's gospel. But as Shakespeare says in The Tempest, the past is prologue. Today's passage from Matthew tells us how we become light for the world. We're still listening to the Sermon of the Mount, but we should be thinking of another mountain. Matthew is. He's retelling the Jesus story through the giving of the Torah to Moses on Mount Sinai. As the presence of Leviticus 19 in the first reading suggests, this is not a revelation about who God is. It's, about a, it's a revelation about who we were created to be. Not an orthodoxy, but an orthopraxis, right behavior according to God's demand that we be holy as he is holy. Matthew is telling us that Jesus is the new Moses, but there's an important difference. Moses received the law from God, Jesus speaks on his own authority. No scribe or Pharisee would have dared doing that because they knew the theological consequences. So does Jesus. By teaching Torah in his own name, he's claiming to be God. And more, he's saying that the Messianic age has actually begun God has reclaimed our fallen world and our broken humanity for his kingdom. He chooses to divinize his creation from within by sending Christ to take on human form. From now on, it's Christ's pattern of living and dying, not the world's, that become the pattern of our own redeemed humanity. So, This is Sexagesima Sunday. Lent is almost upon us when we begin the journey uh, through the desert of repentance to the promised land of Easter. It's a season of grace to measure ourselves against the difficult demands of the gospel, today's gospel, by asking ourselves if we are in fact his image-bearing stewards, and if we are not, then we will have six long Lenten weeks to repent.